Well, good morning. Thank you for tuning in to the Project Church live stream. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jaden. I'm part of the pastoral team out here at the Project. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series uh, on eternity today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, as you're turning there, how good is it that we got to interview Wayne Davis? I've been calling him the uh, key midfielder of our operation for the last five or six weeks. Uh, we're glad that he's around helping us out. So as I said, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And today I want to begin by reading verses 13 through to 18, right to the end of the chapter. This is what 1 Thessalonians 4 has to say. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we had our weekly community group on Thursday night, as we typically do, and someone in our group, it wasn't David Weeks, asked the question, so Jados, in this uh, eternity series that we're doing, are we doing anything on the old rapture? Is that going to come up during the Eternity series? And there was a little bit of a chuckle around the room because I think amongst Christians, it's a little bit of an exciting topic. Uh, If you've been a Christian for some time or you've just been around churches, you may have heard some teaching on it. Uh, It's something that a lot of ink has been spilt discussing. Uh, Some ink more helpful than others. You'll know that there's probably debates around, is is the rapture a pre-tribulational thing? Is Jesus going to kind of come in secret uh, before the tribulation and the church is going to escape that? Is it a, is it a mid-tribulation thing or maybe it's after the tribulation? And we start talking about, is there a, a seven-year gap between this secret coming of Jesus and then maybe his final coming? There's a lot of curious ink that's been spilt on this topic of the rapture. And often it leads to a whole bunch of confusion. But perhaps one of the reasons that the church is often so confused about this thing we call the rapture is because we really fail to recognise the situation that the Thessalonian church found themselves in and really just the pastoral, gentle tone of voice that Paul is speaking with here. You see, as you read this account, you'll notice that Paul is first and foremost speaking with pastoral care to a church who is experiencing the utmost grief. And grief is what happens to our hearts when we experience or suffer loss. And loss, as I'm sure you have experienced, comes in many forms. For some people, your, your grief and your loss is bound up with, I don't know, maybe a loss of career. Maybe you poured your heart and soul into a work opportunity or some study or a business venture and for whatever reason, it just, just didn't work out. You didn't get the outcome you wanted and ever since you've been grieving that loss. Maybe for others, it's, it's not a loss of career, but maybe it's a loss of physical function. Maybe the doctor had to have a very difficult chat with you and say, I'm, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to amputate. 
and you've grieved the loss of a limb. And then though, though we have to be careful with comparing one another's sorrow, perhaps one of the most devastating forms of grief we can experience is when we lose somebody that we love. Perhaps of some of you, you've, you've lost your spouse. And since you've been living as a widow and sometimes the loneliness is just unbearable. For others, maybe you lost a, a dear friend, a, a parent or, or a sibling. And, and then for some of us, the, the grief is particularly unbearable because you never really got to say goodbye properly. Maybe there were some things left unsaid, things you wish you could have told them, but maybe there wasn't the opportunity because the death was so sudden. Grief is no easy thing to bear and sometimes it can take years for the one grieving to return to quote-unquote normal living. And then even then, your grief can revisit you at any time. Anniversaries, birthdays, other events on the calendar. And you need to know that this church in Thessalonica was a grief-stricken church. Now, whether it was from natural causes or some of the persecution that was happening in that region at the time, we're not sure, but these Christians, relatively young Christians, had lost those who were dear to them. And in such circumstances, both in their circumstances and in ours, it really begs the question, what what healing balm do we have in our Christian toolbox for grief? What, What comfort and counsel can we provide when our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering loss and are grieving. Uh, For those of you who know me reasonably well, you know I used to practice uh, physiotherapy. Uh, The short time I've been in the project, I've already been consulted in on a few injuries to date. And uh, part of the reason I I personally chose to leave the profession is because in my my opinion, one of the most under-prescribed medicines amongst physiotherapists is rest. Now, there's a lot of great things about physios. We need them. I believe we've got a couple of uh, young physios joining the church uh, at the moment. And sometimes we we physios, I'll put myself on that same altar, we physios, we, we very zealously want to run in with our magic hands and try and fix people's injuries. But sometimes we forget to prescribe that key ingredient, rest. We have to give the injury time to heal. But sadly, people don't pay top dollar or pay for private health insurance to be told to rest. That's typically not how it works. And I've lost count of the amount of times I've seen sprained ankles just taped back up and told to rush back out into the field when really they probably should be in a moon boot. How many shoulders have been given TheraBand exercises when they really should have been put in a sling? I've seen a bit of that in my time. And in a similar manner, when, when someone is experiencing immense grief. They have just lost a loved one. Their pain is acute and inflammatory and confusing. Too often as Christians, we go galloping in. As well-intentioned as we may be, we often do more harm than good. Usually, a less is more approach is what is needed. And we're going to speak to more of that a little bit later. But we need to know that in our passage today, the Apostle Paul, in the face of a grief-stricken church, he makes what is a seemingly bold statement. He states his purpose for writing right there in verse 13, which we read a moment ago. This is the reason Paul has described what we call the rapture. This is his purpose. Verse 13, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Isn't that fascinating? There's no debate about mid-trib, pre-trib or post-trib. It's just like, no, this is that your grief may not be as those who have no hope. Now, let's 
let's just qualify that statement for a moment because it'd be easier for us to hear Paul and think that he's being a bit pastorally insensitive. I mean, you could make him out here for saying, hey, come on, cut it out. You, stop your crying, stiffen that upper lip. Um, we're, not, we're not to grieve as others do. Cut it out. Is, is that what Paul's doing here? <laughs> Absolutely not. Paul is not a stoic. He's not doing some Jedi master, subdue your emotions kind of nonsense. No. Paul and the other apostles had a category for Christians experiencing deep emotional turmoil. Look at what Paul said to the church in Rome in Romans 12, 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Does Paul have a category for tears in the eyes of a Christian? You bet he does. And then in Acts chapter 8, we read about the first Christian martyr, a man by the name of Stephen, who was a a deacon in the church. He, He cared for widows. He faithfully preached the gospel. And he was tragically stoned to death in Acts chapter 8. And as Luke is rounding off that account in, Luke, uh, in Acts 8.2, this is what he says. It says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Did the apostles believe that Christians could grieve? Absolutely. And if that's not enough to convince you, take a look at Jesus himself. Look at John chapter 11. Jesus had just lost a very dear friend in Lazarus, And in the shortest verse in the whole Bible, it says, Jesus wept. So much so that the onlooking Jews saw Jesus' weeping over Lazarus and they said, see how he loved him. Project Church, you need to know that grief and tears and lament and anguish are normal human Christian responses to loss. And sadly, and this is not to disrespect families or any of the dead, but... Sadly, I have been to Christian funerals where perhaps that truth wasn't all that evident. The atmosphere was exhaustively triumphant. People trying to put their best foot forward rather than just allowing themselves to feel the grief of the moment. So as bold as Paul's statement may appear that we may not grieve as others who have no hope, we need to know that his pastoral tact is far too good to be giving us some cheap and nasty band-aid for acute grief. Paul's too good for that. Paul isn't giving us a magic pill that we can give to the grieving Christian and say, here, here's a pill and a glass of water down the hatch. That's not what Paul's doing in 1 Thessalonians 4. No, no, he is giving us an anchor so that when we suffer loss and the winds of our emotional anguish are blowing us from pillar to post, we only get blown so far. Oh, don't get me wrong. (laughs) We're going to get blown around. When you're grieving, when you're suffering loss, that, just know that that anchor is attached to a very long chain. We are going to get blown around, but we will not grieve as those who are without hope. Our grief is not absent, but it's anchored. All right, well, what exactly is our anchor? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 14, this is what Paul says. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You see, since the beginning, Christians have known that of paramount importance is proclaiming the truth that Jesus died and rose again. Of all the essential truths that we confess in Christianity, the death and resurrection of Jesus is chief. 
And this is reflected in some of the earliest Christian creeds. You look at the Apostles' Creed, you look at the Nicene Creed. Christians have always known that we have to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. But before any of those creeds were written, look at what Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul knew that it was crystal clear in his mind that these things were of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." Paul is saying is what he's saying is that if our faith is grounded in anything you better believe it is grounded in the historically reliable account of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, If you're with us on Easter Sunday you may remember that we went through some of that evidence the evidence for the resurrection we spoke about over 500 eyewitnesses the the empty tomb the martyrdom of the apostles the the evidence is irrefutable and we agreed with Paul that if Christ was not raised from the dead that our faith is futile And we are of all people to be most pitied. Uh, If you missed that video, it's available online. But as you continue to trace the argument that Paul's putting together in 1 Corinthians 15, having, having established the fact that Jesus did in fact die and was rose again, he he takes it even further. He doesn't just stop with Jesus. He says, because Jesus died and rose again, that that is a guarantee that all of those who we've lost in the Lord will also be resurrected at his return. Look at how he continues the argument in verses 20 to 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, if Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And that is the same point that Paul is making in our passage today in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You see, the church in Thessalonica were swimming in a world that didn't have much hope when it came to death. Their their thoughts were uh, dominated by pagan ideas. Now, it's true, there were different religions that had uh, life after death thought, that's true, but at a street level, for most people, it was nothing but misery and despair. That was the norm in Thessalonica. One commentator highlights that we have evidence of Greek and Latin manuscripts from that time who say things like this, describing their life. I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. Despair and misery. Once you're dead, you're dead. That was the surrounding culture in Thessalonica. But Paul makes a countercultural statement and says, no, 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 our, our grief's different to that. It is anchored in the finished work of Jesus, that ultimately for those who we've lost in the Lord, it actually really isn't goodbye. It truly is, see you later. As uh, John Christostom put it, he says, Weep then, 
at the death of a dear one, as if you were bidding farewell to one setting out on a journey. And I'm convinced that that is a huge part of our Christian witness. Christians ought to be a people who, generally speaking, are those who are not afraid of death. In fact, this is actually a reputation that Christians have had for centuries, that we are those who know how to die well. It's incredible what you will read by Christians who have gone before for us in previous centuries. Look at what uh, 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said. He said, If I may die, as I have seen some of our church members die, I caught the grand occasion. Profound. <laughs> I would not wish to escape death by some byroad if I may sing as they sang. I caught the grand occasion. This is how Christians have faced death in the past. A few years ago, I read the biography of one of my all-time favourites, a minister by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a 20th century uh, uh, minister who ministered largely out of Westminster Chapel in London. And toward the end of his life, as his body was deteriorating, as illness was making him um, weaker and weaker, this is what he had to say. He said, I am grateful to God that I have been given this time. I agree with Chalmers, absolutely. We do not give enough time to death and to our going on. It is a very strange thing. The one certainty, yet we do not think about it. We are too busy. We, are, we allow life and its circumstances so to occupy us that we do not stop and think. People say about sudden death, it is a wonderful way to go. I have come to the conclusion that is quite wrong. I think the way we go out of this world is very important. And this is my great desire now that I may perhaps be enabled to bear a greater testimony than ever before. Death is not something to slip past. It should be victorious. I am grateful, therefore, for this experience. You see, what these men knew is that as Christians, we don't have to fear death or, for want of a better word, it incessantly grieve those who we've lost in the Lord. And the reason is, is because Jesus promises that he will bring with him those who are asleep. And if we grasp this, not only will it bring hope to our own souls as we are grieving, but it will be a sweet, refreshing melody and a, I would even say a powerful evangelistic witness to a world who just doesn't know what to do with death. A world that is starving to be part of a narrative that extends beyond this present life. You hear that cry often in our culture. We do not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, at this point, I'm sure we want to ask, Jaden, that, that sounds incredible. Like, when will this be? And what's that day going to be like? <laughs> well, these are the details we have. Let's keep reading from verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is our itinerary. 
This is what the Bible has given us concerning that day. And there's a sense in which we, we read this itinerary and the details are a bit confusing. We don't quite have a category for what he's talking about here. There, there's trumpets and archangels and what do we do with this? Well, we have to ask the question, what would this have meant to the original audience? The closest parallel I can give you is when I was a kid and my, my brothers and sisters and I, when we used to have relatives come and stay with us from interstate, we used to get quite excited about the, uh, the, just the incredible opportunity it was to accompany mum and dad to the airport to come and pick them up. I mean, they had made this uh, huge interstate journey, probably somewhere in the order of 1,400 kilometres uh, from Albury-Wodonga, that kind of area. And um, even though they had travelled 1,400 kilometres, we thought it was an honour and privilege to make that final 40-kilometre car trip home. <laughs> We wanted to just get that last leg of the journey. Now, we could have stayed at home and they were going to get to our place eventually, but it was a privilege to just join them on that last leg of the journey. I'm sure you've all experienced that. We thought it was incredible to peer through the airport glass, to watch them step off the plane and see if you could pick them out, welcoming them at the airport, and yes, seeing if they've brought us any gifts. That definitely happened. And then accompanying them for that last 40 kilometres home. And in the first century, this is kind of how you would welcome any dignitary, right? So there's a, there's a small example of this in uh, Acts 28 with the Apostle Paul. Uh, Acts 28 verses 14 to 15. This is what it says. It says, There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. So there's an invitation. Here we go. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. So Paul's making his way to Rome and the brothers say, well, let's, let's just meet him for the last leg of the journey. This is how you would welcome a dignitary. Furthermore, this happened uh, in the, uh, the Roman world as well. If Caesar were to come and visit your city, say somewhere like Corinth, a large percentage of the population, the majority actually, would meet him uh, outside the city and then they would accompany him in a large procession, a large parade back towards Corinth or whatever city you're in. And whenever Caesar did something like that, the word they would use to describe that when people would leave their city and meet them just outside of it was called a parousia, which is the same word that Paul uses to describe the second coming of Jesus. This is what we have in the rapture. Paul is saying that as Jesus makes his descent to earth in whatever kind of temporospatial manifestation that will have, whether it's figurative or literal trumpets, who knows, but we will go to meet him in the air, that we're going to go meet him at the airport, as it were, <laughs> at which point he will continue his descent with us and we're going to accompany him on that last leg of the journey to earth. And at our side will be those who we've lost in the Lord. That is the picture that Paul is painting for us here. This is a grand parade and procession. And Paul wants to assure them, he says, if, if you're worried about those who you've lost in the Lord missing out on grand day in any way as though they're somehow disadvantaged by the fact that their bodies are in the ground Paul reminds us here they'll actually be the ones leading the parade <laughs> he says the dead in Christ will rise first it seems that there were some people in the Thessalonian church who feared that even though Jesus would gather those who had fallen asleep somehow they would be at a disadvantage at the resurrection as though they would kind of you know scrape in with a kind of bronze medal resurrection when those who are alive would get the gold they were, they were worried they were going to miss out in some way. Paul says, no, the, we who are alive will not precede those who are dead. 
on that final car trip home, they call shotgun on the front seat. The dead in Christ will rise first. They will be leading the procession. And when you see them, they will be glorious. And so will you. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. We've been in there a bit today. Uh, Verses 50 to 57. This is also describing the same event. It says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. There's those trumpets again. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall we come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, one of the tragedies of losing our loved ones is that often the way we remember their bodies in those last moments or those last years is not always pleasant. Sometimes as we watch them suffering, we can start to fear death ourselves. We can start to fear the the dying process and just cry out and say, surely this is not how this was meant to be. And if you're you're unfamiliar with that, go and talk to your local police officer who's got a few years under the belt, maybe been to a few car crash sites. They'll tell you a little bit about the fear of death. But Paul reminds us here that on that day, at the last trumpet, we will all be changed. Let me tell you, every, every amputated limb every cancer-riddled body, every martyred saint, and every believer who just quietly died in their sleep will be made glorious on that day. Their bodies will not only be restored, but made into something entirely more glorious. They will be made what Paul calls imperishable. Now, we don't have all the details on exactly what these resurrection bodies are going to be looking like. There's a lot of questions around which parts will continue and which will discontinue. I mean, for example, look at Jesus's resurrected body. Thomas was still able to put his finger marks through his hands. I have a surgical scar on my stomach. Is that going to be in my resurrected body? I hope not, but it might be. We don't know all the details. Jesus, we read, after his resurrection was passing through walls. Will that be true of us? Well, I don't know, the jury's still out. I guess we'll, we'll find out on that glorious day. But what I can tell you is that it's going to be incredible and there is going to be a mockery of death itself. That's what Paul's saying there in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your sting? On that day, Jesus, in celebration with us, will mock death. That is a day we look forward to. And as you consider the resurrection and the rapture of the church, let me just gently ask you this morning, and my apologies if you're in any kind of acute grieving this morning and this is hard to hear, but um, who do you look forward to seeing? Who do you look forward to seeing on that glorious day? As I stand here today, I must admit, though I've cried many tears over those who I've lost, um, I doubt very much that I've suffered the kind of grief that maybe some people listening have. I've 
Some of my best mates have lost fathers or younger brothers, but I've never had to quite experience grief up that close. But for me personally, when I read this account in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, for me personally, I, I often grieve my loss of physical function. I had a back operation a few years ago, which has um, taken away some of my, my pain, but um, I've actually run out of a fair bit of range of motion in my back. And I'm a guy who grew up as a gym junkie and a reasonably keen sportsman. I, I often grieve my loss of physical function. Um, if you watch me as a batsman playing cricket, you go, oh, there's, there's nothing wrong with you. Maybe a few of my technical issues, but generally speaking, I can do it pain-free. But if you watch me put socks on in the morning, that's a totally different thing. If I try and pick something up off the floor, you'll notice I move pretty awkwardly at times. Uh, the music team will testify to this if they've seen me setting up church. Um, it's one chair at a time for Jaden. I take it pretty slowly. That's why I get there pretty early before church on a Sunday, at least pre-pandemic. So at the age of 30, I'm already looking forward to the resurrection, if I'm, if I'm totally honest. When I get that new body and we get caught up in the air, I tell you, I'm doing bicep curls on the way up. I cannot wait for that resurrection body. I'm doing gym sessions with the archangels. Bring that on, right? <laughs> Christian, what, what do you look forward to? Who do you look forward to seeing on that day? Just ponder that today and let it be an encouragement to you. Who, who do you miss? We do not grieve as those who are without hope. You know, maybe there's a, a sibling you never got to say goodbye to. To the, lonely, to the lonely widow, Paul declares to you by a word from the Lord that you will be reunited, reunited with your spouse. What a message of hope Paul's giving us here. And yet, there's something that Paul highlights here that's crucial for us. He says in verse 17, so we will always be with the Lord. Oh, it's going to be such joy to be reunited with those who we've lost in the Lord. But as the Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You see, the reason Christ came into the world was to bring us to himself, to, to restore the relationship that mankind once had with God in the garden. We look forward to that day because we will forever be with the Lord. Matthew Henry sums this up nicely. He says, this should comfort the saints upon the death of their friends, that although death has made a separation, yet their souls and bodies will meet again. We and they shall meet together again. We and they, with all the saints, shall meet our Lord and be with him forever. No more to be separated, whether from him or from one another, forever. And what does Paul tell us to do with all these words? Does he tell us to fight over mid-trib, post-trib or anything like that? No. This is how he finishes off this little account. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So how do we do that? I was reading a book this week titled, What Grieving People Wish You Knew, now written by a woman named Nancy Guthrie. And I'm sure some of you be familiar with that name and with her ministry. And she tells the tragic tale of how she gave birth to a daughter in the late 90s, 98, I believe it was. And two days after her birth, the doctor came in to see her and her husband. And the doctor revealed that their daughter had a very rare genetic condition called Zellweger syndrome. 
that meant their daughter would not live for very long. And that young girl was only in their lives for 199 days, they counted out, about six months. And if that wasn't heartbreaking enough, just three years later, they gave birth to a son. Same thing. He had the same condition and he also was only in their lives for about six months. And Nancy, having been through everything that she's been through, goes on to explain sometimes the well-meaning and yet insensitive ways that we often respond to people's grief. Sometimes it's assumption. We assume that we know what they're going through and say something like, like, I know how you feel. Truth is, you probably don't. No two people grieve in exactly the same way. Sometimes we we slap some cheesy Christian cliche on them like it's a band-aid, something like, oh, you've been through that? Now God can use you to comfort those who have been through a similar situation. Or sometimes we just play the expert. Look, hey, I know this great psychologist, this great doctor, he'll fix this for you. Sometimes in our effort to help, we do more harm than good. And even with our text today, I'm I'm not giving you permission to go and print 1 Thessalonians 4 onto some fridge magnets so that you can start handing them out to those who are grieving. That's, that is not what we're doing here today. So how should we respond? Let me just give you three practical things, uh, which is a combination of things I've, I've learned from, from pastors and men, many years my senior and also from Guthrie. Things that I pray would help you to console those who are grieving. Firstly, Learn the beauty of relative silence. As we've seen, it's, it's possible to say too much when people are grieving, but sometimes it's just as painful to say nothing. People need to see that you're acknowledging that they are grieving, but sometimes the simplest words are the most helpful. I'm so sorry. This sucks. <laughs> and then accompanying that, often actions speak louder than words. The hand on the shoulder or the big hug is some of your best medicine there. Secondly, let the grieving person take the lead. If you're struck on what to say, that is in some sense a great place to be. (laughs) But if you're unsure, the one who is grieving will often set the pace for you. And they might even start to talk about things that maybe you don't think are the right things to talk about at this particular point in the grieving process. And don't try and stop that. Just let them set the pace and then thirdly learn that in acute grief we're not shooting for theological precision but we tenderly drip feed the truth that is not a time for you to go robustly correcting theology (laughs) well we want truth but we drip feed it we do it tenderly and we do it mercifully we do not grieve as those who are without hope